Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. How are you? I hope you're doing well. It's week four of the quarantine. How about that? Are you being kind to yourself? You should be. Are you being kind to those around you? Are they being kind to you? Is there a virtuous cycle of kindness whipping around inside your house, condominium, or apartment, or yurt, wherever it is that you reside? Hope so. Hope your kids are being good to you. I hope you're being good to your kids. I hope you're finding patience with your roommates and the roommates you're married to, however that might be. That's all you can do right now. That's all you can do. You can't work harder. You can't outwork the coronavirus. That's the problem for Americans. We think like, oh, there's a problem. Let's just outwork it. Let's stay up late and be heroic in our efforts. Do I need to run 24 miles? Do I need to walk up a mountain in my socks to beat the coronavirus? I'll do it. We can do those kinds of things. But sit back and be patient? <laughs> That's for that's for other cultures. Come on, people. That's not how we beat things in the United States of America. We're not into this asymmetric war nonsense. We're like the British during the Revolutionary War. We want to line up in our red coats and beat you down with our privilege. Come here, coronavirus. I'm going to buy you out. Anyway, I hope you're being kind to those around you, like I said. Week four, pretty crazy. Like six weeks ago, if somebody would have told you that in a few weeks, when you go to the grocery store, you're going to wear rubber gloves and a hazmat suit, you'd be like, you're out of your mind. That's never going to happen here. And pretty much that's what's going on. But what's even crazier is that, you know, while we feel like we've lived through a lot so far, we know this is going to go on. Schools here in Georgia are closed at least through the end of May. Why we end so early, I have no idea, but that's what it is. So we've got at least another seven weeks of distance learning and social distancing, most likely. And even though we feel like we've been through a lot in week four, by about week 10, we're going to look back and be like, week four, oh, that was so quaint. Then remember then, we were so young then. That was when we were still married. That was, that was 15 pounds ago. That's when I still had hope for life. Uh, anyway, but I was asking myself, what can I do? What's, you know, cause I think we all have to do that. And God bless the doctors and the nurses and the people putting food on the grocery store shelves, but that's not me. So what can I do? What can I do? I think humor, insight, and perspective. That's what I've got to share. And hopefully it will give you a respite from what's going on in the world right now. And when I say perspective, I don't mean to minimize what we're going through right now. This is unprecedented and it's challenging and it shouldn't be minimized. But we should keep in mind that humans have lived through other unprecedented and difficult times in the past. And I wanted to bring into the conversation someone whose life changed in a day 12 years ago when he learned that all of his money disappeared in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. None of us had ever heard of Bernie Madoff, and this guy was living a good life prior to that. He had saved, he had done all the right things, and through no fault of his own, poof, goes $2 million overnight. Let me tell you about him. He's my guest today, and he was very kind to speak to us and be very frank in what the experience put him through and how he's recovered from it. Steve Heimoff is a wine writer, author, and former West Coast editor at Wine Enthusiast. He has published three books about winemaking with the University of California Press. In 2008, Steve learned that his entire savings, almost two million bucks, vanished in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. And like I said, he was very candid, and he went through some very hard times, as you'll hear. And so I just think it's interesting to keep that in perspective right now. And a lot of people have seen their jobs go away. A lot of people have seen, you know, 35% of their savings disappear in the space of a couple of weeks. A lot of people have lost people, but we're going to get through this. And when you find yourself getting freaked out, keep Steve's story in mind. We're going to be okay. This is Steve Heimoff. Came home from San Francisco one night 
found an email from a cousin and the, uh, the subject said, uh, bad news about the arbitrage. And I opened it and my cousin said, uh, well, it's, it's all gone. Every penny. Oh God. Yeah. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Steve Heimoff, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me. Steve, take me back to mid-2008. Where were you living? What kind of work were you doing? And how was it going? I was living where I am now here in Oakland, California. I was uh, at the height of my wine writing, wine critic review career, working as the West Coast editor for the Wine Enthusiast magazine. How old were you at the time? I'm 73 now, so whatever... Early sixties. You know, Twelve so, years ago was sixty-one or something. Yeah. So, were you thinking about retirement, and how were you set financially for that? No, I was not thinking about retirement because I really, you know, I had a great job. <laughs> I really did. So I had no desire whatsoever to uh, retire. How were things going for you financially? The thing was is that I was part of this family investment that we called for short the arbitrage. Our connection to it was through uh, a relative of mine, an older man who invited me into it. And it was a pretty good investment and it paid pretty good interest. And that, that had been going since the 1980s. And one of the reasons why I was able to uh, enjoy a relatively low paying career as a wine writer was because I had this terrific uh, retirement plan through this uh, arbitrage. And I didn't really have to worry about salary or getting a 401k or anything like that. So in 2008, I felt I was doing very well. And how much of your net worth did you have tied up in that investment fund? Well, it depends, Paul, on how you measure it. There's the amount that I put into it. And then there was the accrued interest that grew on that Mm. amount over the years. You know, when the shit hit the fan, my last statement had been somewhere between $1.5 and $2 million. I I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. And how did you find out about the shit hitting the fan? Came home from San Francisco one night, uh, December 8th, 2000, and found an email from a cousin. And the the subject said, uh, bad news about the arbitrage. And I opened it, and my cousin said, uh, well, it's it's all gone, every penny. Oh, God. Yeah. Were you standing when you read that email? or? or well, no, I was sitting at my desk. Oh, okay. But, I mean, obviously, it was the beginning of a very difficult period for me. And for so many other people who went down with Madoff, it was a very difficult period. I have to imagine that your first reaction when you open this is complete and utter disbelief and you've got to get the facts. Is that what you felt at first? Well, I don't, I don't think I want to say who she is, but um, she's a very visible person in the world of, uh, of politics. And I knew that she knew whereof she spoke. Mm. 
So I had no idea. I had no, you know, thought in my head that this was some kind of joke or, or rumor. I knew it was true because of who it came from. And she was uh, in, you know, in the arbitrage too. So uh, in fact, I found out about six or eight months later, this whole family scheme that I had been talking about was on my father's side of the family, but I have a, you know, my mother's side of the family too. And I'm not really that close with them because we've never lived geographically close. But about six or eight months after this happened, I was talking to my cousin on my mother's side and I said to him, oh, by the way, I and and most of my family on my father's side, you know, went down with this thing. And he replied, we did too. <laughs> so, oh, unbeknownst to us, it was uh, both sides of the family. Although the difference was in my case, on my father's side of the family, we were what is called indirect investors. We had invested into what turned out to be a feeder fund into Madoff, whereas my family on my mom's side had invested directly with Bernie Madoff. Wow. What are the chances of that? What are the chances? But, you know, I mean, it was a Jewish thing. I mean, uh, if you were Jewish and had, you know, sort of urban connections on the East and West Coast, and you had, uh, you know, some money. I mean, I, I didn't have a lot, but if you met those criteria, you had more than an even chance of being involved because that's why so many Jewish individuals and institutions, not just in America, but in Europe and Israel and around the world, um, were wiped out in that. Hey, everybody, it's Paul here interrupting this very interesting interview with Steve to share that if you'd like additional perspective on dealing with difficult times, you should check out the interview I did last year with Ryan Holiday. That is only after you finish the excellent program you're listening to now. Ryan, as you very well may know, is the author of many best-selling books about Stoicism. The Stoics, as you also probably know, believe that our character is based not on what happens to us, but on how we react to the difficult circumstances life presents us with. And during these difficult times, it is incumbent upon us to show up with the virtues of wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. Well, how about just wisdom, justice, and courage? Anyway, to find out more, check out episode number 25 of Crazy Money with Ryan Holiday. It came out on October 1st, 2019, but you can only listen to it after you're done here. All right, now back to Steve. In the blink of an eye, you were financially devastated. Yeah. What yeah. were those early days like? Oh, it was horrible. It was just, you know, I, I was suicidal. I had been in therapy kind of on and off for a while. Anyway, just about garden variety, you know, neurotic stuff. <laughs> and I remember at that time, I mean, my therapist said to me that he might have to uh, invoke a certain clause of the law and call the police because he was concerned that after I left his office, I, I might have killed myself. To have you hospitalized? Yeah, there's, you know, there's some kind of mandatory 5150 or whatever it's called. And I can remember having a, uh, a conversation with another cousin of mine, a nurse, who also lost her money. And I was talking about suicide, and she said something I never forgot. She said, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. 
And I thought, wow, well, this doesn't feel like a temporary problem now. I mean, I was convinced I was going to be sleeping in a storefront on a piece of cardboard. In Oakland, that's still like 1200 a month. Yeah. Tell me. Well, that was 12 years ago today. It's, like <laughs> right. it's even worse. $4,500. <laughs> right. But, you know, I mean, she was right. Uh, I'm glad I didn't uh, kill myself. Although, you know, people did. I mean, including Madoff's son. Um, let's not forget that. Right. Your first concern was that you were going to be destitute? or yeah. were, And was that mixed with other emotions? And if so, what were they? Well, that was the main emotion. I had always thought, and I had told other people if, uh, if the topic came up, that uh, my great fear, uh, you know, even when I was younger, was being poor mm. and broke in America because I always thought America is not a very good country to be poor in, you know, because we don't have a social democracy. So I was always afraid of, of being poor. My parents were kind of poor. They really never made it out of the Bronx. You know, so all my life that was sort of a driving thing is I, I cannot be poor. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was going to grad school through the university, they gave us, uh, we had access to a financial advisor and he set me up in my first, I guess it would have been an IRA. Mm-hmm. And he told me at one point, he said that I was saving more or a greater percentage of my salary than any one of the clients that he had ever had. And what percentage was that? Do you remember? Oh, I was was probably putting in a third Mm -hmm. of my salary every month just because I was never, you know, I never really was interested in having a high net worth lifestyle. I mean, I lived very simply and frugally. So even in 1983, 84, 85, it made sense to me to just stash as much of my salary away from my retirement because I knew I wasn't going to inherit anything for my parents. They just, they just didn't have any money. And I knew I was, you know, with no kids, I was going to be on my own. So it was important mm-hmm. to me. It was a, a real value, a moral imperative for me to save as much money as I could. Did you feel responsible or guilty for what happened to you in any weird way? No. Why, why would I have? I mean, well, I just, it, it I, wasn't I, my fault. Well, I think sometimes when people make bad investment decisions or decisions that turn out to be bad through no fault yeah. of their own, they can still feel personally responsible for it because you had that money. I, I yeah. felt I felt that in some of the investments I've made. I had that money. I made a bad decision in how to manage it. I felt personally responsible, even though I wasn't the one who lost the money per se. You know? Yeah. No, I, I know what you're saying, and I, I might have gone there. The difference was that I was not investing in some objective, you know, third party thing. I was investing in a family fund. So I was not just trusting, you know, my own instincts or I was not trusting just the, uh, the statement of, of my balance that was coming from some banker that I didn't even know. I was trusting my family, my relatives. Right my older relatives, people who had bounced me on their knee when I was a baby, who I had known all my life and loved and grown up with. And when they said, trust us, you know, this is safe. This is real. That's what made the difference between 
maybe, you know, regretting it or not regretting it. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, it just makes it, it's just a different cocktail of emotions, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I mean, like having said that, in retrospect, should I have known that an account that returned 14, 15% in interest every year, every single year, should I have, you know, sort of thought that, hey, maybe there's something weird going on here? Yeah, maybe I should have. And I did. And I mean, that more than once, many times when I would see my relatives who had invited me into it, I would raise that. And I would say, you know, I I don't understand how this thing works. How can it be so consistent? And eventually my relatives said to me, you know, they got angry at me and sort of understandably so. And I remember an uncle saying, look, Stevie, we have told you time and time and time again to trust this thing and trust us. It's real. So if you're really going to be upset about it or worry about it, we're glad to give you your money back and you can go someplace else. And I thought, well, I'm going to stay in. So I did. Yeah. Well, it's hard to, I mean, who's going to get out of a fund that's paying them 14 or 15%? I mean, unless you really, really hold yourself accountable and honest and have a deep knowledge of the investment business, it's hard to recognize fraud when it's paying you so damn well. I mean, come on. No, I mean, it's just, you don't, you don't know until you know. I mean, obviously people have said to me subsequently, you were an idiot, you know, you were a fucking moron. I mean, why, what made you think that, that you were special or your family was special and you were entitled to 15% a year when, you know, everyone else was lucky to get whatever. And I guess that's true. And, you know, you just have to chalk it up to... I don't know, naivety or, or mm. an entropy. Right. Maybe. Yeah. And, but also, you know, it played into that ancient fear that I had of being poor in America. That was my insurance against being poor. Right. Again, I mean, I have to stress the fear, my fear of, of being poor and old and broke was just so strong that maybe it did blind me to objective reason. We can debate that endlessly. There's sort of an aspect of angels dancing on pinheads. <laughs> yes, um, yes. So I'll never know. And, and you know, I mean, in the aftermath, after 2008, when I would have those internal conversations with myself, the answer was not to drive myself crazy with, recrimination or self-doubt or blame. It was to figure out a path forward. How long did that take? To figure out a path forward? Well, to where you got in the mental space where you were like, okay, I need to move forward. Because you were talking about you were despondent to the point of being on the brink. So how long did it take to work through that? Well, I think that both those things can exist in the brain at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of you is like, I'm ruined. I have to consider killing myself. But another part of you is like, no, you know, don't be ridiculous. You're not going to kill yourself. That's stupid. You're going to move forward and your family is still there and your friends are still there and you own your own place. So, you know, you're not going to lose that. Oh, that's big. You know, I think they were both balanced for 
a while. And then as time went on, the balance tilted in favor of, I will make it. I will survive. I'm not going to give in to, to fear and catastrophizing. Were there phases like the phases of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, or, or was yeah, it? Yeah, Kugler-Ross. I, I mean, I never sat down to try to figure that out. But, you know, I guess in retrospect, I mean, it, it is a curve. You, you start with this overwhelming sense of defeat and loss. But, you know, like every grandma or grandpa has told every kid, you know, hang in there. It gets better. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and it did get better. I was lucky or my family was lucky in one sense. And that is that in the year, oh, I think it was either 2004 or 2005, the family members who had invited us in notified us that the arbitrage was no longer taking deposits. We could continue to withdraw money, but we were no longer permitted to invest money. And there was no explanation given as to why. But in retrospect, that gave me and my family four years before the thing went bankrupt so that we could, you know, we we could by force find new places to invest our money. And, you know, so that was good. That saved four years of income from, from being thrown away. I had higher paying years. In 2012, I left my you know, long career as a wine writer and critic, and I went to work for Jackson Family Wines, mm-hmm. which is the parent company of Kendall Jackson. Sure. And, uh, and I made really good money for about four years. And, you know, again, I just saved every damn penny that I could. So until <laughs> this coronavirus thing and the market, you know, crash, I felt fine. Yeah. Until two weeks ago, you know. <laughs> well, that's one of the. Re- <laughs> I've been here before. Yeah, that's and that was one of the catalysts for me reaching out. I've long wanted to talk to Madoff Survivor. What uh, you can call victim, victim survivor. I I, I want to be respectful, but I lost thirty five percent of my money too in the last two weeks until yesterday. Who knows what it is right now? But I was like, okay, this isn't going to kill Actually, me. Actually, I'm I'm looking at uh, the screen. The Dow is up. 1100 points. So. Well, you know, until it isn't, who knows what's going to happen? Until it, yeah, <laughs> you know, so when you went to work for the, the Jackson family winery, was that purposefully to achieve more economic security? Yes. No question about it. I really dug my old job. Yeah. I mean, I had, and again, as I say, it wasn't the highest paying thing in the world, but I mean, I had fallen in love with wine head over heels, passionately, mm history of it, the science of it, the hedonistic tasting. The way it makes your brain feel? Everything, (laughs) everything. And for me to have really lucked out in the late 80s into this job of getting paid to review wine and being, you know, relatively a big fish in a small pond, being in charge of my magazine's California coverage and California being the you know greatest wine region in America, it was an unbelievably wonderful job. I was so happy. I just really loved it. But um, when the Jackson family offered me that opportunity in 2012, I was like, when they told me what they were willing to pay me, I was like, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, they sell a good bit of wine, those guys, the KJ folks. Oh, my God. The Kendall Jackson Vintners Reserve Chardonnay 
has been the number one selling Chardonnay in the United States for, I mean, when I left, it had been for 20 plus years Mm. and I expect it still is. So yeah, they know how to sell wine. But one of the things I really liked about Jackson family wines is that Kendall Jackson was, and is only one of their brands. I mean, they had, I don't know what it is today, but when I joined them, they had 40, 45 brands, something like that, you know, five continents of the world. And where Kendall Jackson is a, you know, a supermarket brand, their other, or many of their other brands were just fabulous world-class wines in, in Bordeaux and, and Tuscany. It was thrilling to me to be connected with, you know, with a company that has such great vineyards and and properties around the world. So um, they called it going over to the dark side, or we called it going over to the dark side when a writer slash critic who's independent or works for a magazine turns around and takes a job with a a winery. You know, you're sort of, eh, you know, you're kind of working for the- Did you have to swallow your pride to do that? Well, in a way I did, but- I think in in my case, and we had these conversations, you know, when when we were uh, talking about it, and I think they understood that Steve is a very independent type. He has a reputation as a fierce journalist, as a truth teller. He has a reputation of speaking truth to power. And, you know, they understood that if they wanted me, they had to take the whole package that I was not going to be a yes man or violate any of my standards of truth telling or withholding from criticism. They understood that and they abided by that. I was a pretty independent soul. They let me work from home, which was great. So I don't think I had to swallow a lot of pride and, you know, you know, maybe a little bit, (laughs) but I always thought like in my head, I didn't lose any sleep. I was, fine. I could look myself in the mirror and respect myself and, you know, know that I still had integrity and honor. And I'll tell you something else is even before I took that new job, I had always had friends who were wine writers and critics who couldn't make it, you know, because it's just hard. And every once in a while, they would take a job with a winery and they would, you know, talk to me and they would say, geez, I, I just feel so bad. I feel so bad that I had to go to the dark side. And I would always say to them the same thing. Don't feel bad. Hold your head high. You're still the same person. You have integrity. You have honor. You have dignity. So do your job. Do it well. And don't you know beat yourself up because you took a job. So I felt that way before. And, you know, what was good for the goose was good for the gander. I had to uh, abide by that same advice. Do you think that the whole Madoff experience gave you more perspective for those kinds of trade-offs in life? No, (laughs) not really. You're hip to that early on? Yeah. I mean, the perspective that I got was if a younger person asked me my advice in investing, I would say, diversify, (laughs) you know, which, which, you know, which has always been true anyway. You know, my main mistake in retrospect was that I didn't diversify. I had so much trust that uh, I didn't invest anywhere else 
for all those years. You were making 14, 15% a year. And I believe there were hundreds of victims, including savvy, savvy investors with billions of dollars in the fund. They, oh, there were, there they, were tens of thousands of victims. Right, yeah. So, right. So, but, but indirect and direct. Yeah. But they didn't get out. So why should Steve wine writer in California, who's up to other things, why should you know what they don't know? Or why should well, you be more self-aware? True. than they I mean, are? you can Google, you know, famous Madoff investors and, you know, there's Steven Spielberg and Kevin Bacon, the actor, and Ellie Wiesel. And, but not just those people, but professional fund managers with billions oh, totally. of dollars yeah. under management. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Although, I mean, the culpability of some of the billionaire managers has yet to be determined. Mm. Many of them have since died. And we don't know. I mean, even with my uncle who got us into it. He died years ago. I mean, to this day, I don't know. I have no idea what he knew, what he did not know. And we'll never know because he's dead and his wife is dead. And Yeah. There's a lot of people that were involved that are no longer alive. And as you mentioned, Mark Madoff, Bernie's son, hanged himself. Yeah. What did you think when you heard that? Well, mixed emotions. I mean... I remember shortly after this happened, um, and you may have seen the YouTube because it's out there, MSNBC, not MSNBC, CNBC, interviewed me for Squawk Box, I guess, which was their morning live show. Yep. And the reporter really, really tried his best to get me to, you know, scream and curse at Bernie Madoff and demand he be put to death and all this kind of stuff. And I remember saying, you know, I really can't be that angry at made off the law will work its way he will you know go through the system and be treated accordingly and i'm happy to let that happen so i i don't know it's just the way i'm built i never got really really pissed off and angry at anybody i just thought well it's a bad thing that happened and you know shit happens i mean when uh the the madoff kid hung himself i just you know, I, I felt bad for, for Madoff, for his wife, for, for the brother mm-hmm. who survived. And I still do. Having said that, as you know, um, Madoff is petitioning for early release. And as a victim, I was invited to weigh in. And I did urge the court to keep him in his minimum security white collar prison for the rest of his life. Because he really did harm so many people. Yeah. And institutions and, you know, I mean, entire unions, labor unions were wiped out. I remember hearing some, the entire fire department of, I can't remember, Greenwich, Connecticut or Fairfield County or something like that had their investment with uh, Madoff. I mean, firefighters, right? Right. So, you know, I'm not happy the kid hung himself, but it does seem to me the least... uh, that can happen is that Bernie Madoff die, die in prison. Can you think that and also forgive him? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I really understand the concept of forgiveness. I mean, for one thing, he never asked me to forgive him. Right. I did. I did try to get an interview with him right after it happened. And I, because I ended up being the lead plaintiff mm-hmm. in one of the uh, recovery lawsuits and because of that, I had contact information from Madoff's lawyer. 
And this is after he had been arrested and he was in his white collar prison in, where is it, Virginia? North Carolina, I think. I think. North Carolina. And I wrote the lawyer and I said, you know what? This would be great. Let me do an interview with Bernie and uh, maybe even a short book. And it would be like a Madoff victim talks to Bernie Madoff. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm not going to attack him. I'm not really insanely angry. I just want to sit down and have a conversation. And it's what I do anyway. I have a, I'm a reporter. I have a number of books out. I know how to interview. And it was funny because when my attorneys, as the lead plaintiff, heard that I had been in touch with Madoff's attorney, they, they just had a shit fit. <laughs> it, it, almost, it almost derailed. <laughs> it was like when, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, when Bill Clinton ran into uh, his former Oh, right. On the, the on the tarmac. Yeah. On the tarmac. I mean, it was like that. It Don't was like, do it. It was just like panic on all sides. But, if, you know, it was okay. I didn't get the interview. But um, how did that lawsuit work out? Did you recoup any of your money? Well, we did. Basically got back what we put in. Right. Over the years. I never really sat down and figured it out. But I've basically been recouped both through the lawsuit and through the... Uh, the IRS, which I have to say, I, I had I didn't know this, but they have uh, certain laws and protections in place concerning theft loss. And uh, I didn't even have to pay federal income taxes for a number of years. So that helped recoup. And then the recovery from the lawsuit helped recoup. And then two years or so ago, the Department of Justice did a very interesting thing, which was very unexpected. You know, under the SIPC, S-I-P-C, the security, I don't know what it stands for anymore. Neither do I. It, <laughs> it's Treasury Department, you know, regulation. And it enabled direct investors, like my mother's side of the family, who gave their money directly to Bernie Madoff, were covered by a federal insurance fund. And that insurance fund covered the difference between their net equity. And if they had taken out less than they put in, then this SIPC insurance fund paid them the difference. Unfortunately, the SIPC insurance fund was only for direct investors. And the father's side, myself, were indirect investors. So we learned very early on in the process that we would not be getting any SIPC money. And that was very devastating. And people were really, really bummed out about that. But as I say, about two years ago, I have never seen any reporting on why this happened, but the Department of Justice, this is my interpretation. The Department of Justice decided, and this was during the Obama administration. So when when I say two years ago, it's more like three. The uh, Department of Justice decided that it was really fundamentally unfair that direct investors were compensated through the grace of the federal government and indirect investors were not. Mm -hmm. So the treasury department fined a whole bunch of banks that had been involved in the Madoff scheme and they raised billions and billions and billions of dollars. And they set up a fund or an office in New York. There was a lot of paperwork and a lot of back and forth. And we had to, you know, go through in some cases 30 years of records and 
prove to them what we had invested and what we had taken out. But they were they gave us some money, you know, from the billions they raised from the banks. So I'm actually very grateful to the U.S. Department of Justice for uh, doing something that apparently they really didn't have to do and that they decided to do anyway. That's good to hear. Yeah. How do you think your experience affects how you think about what's going on right now with the coronavirus? Oh, uh, well, I, there's not really a connection. I mean, Well, does it give you more perspective on sort of how much to freak out about certain things? Only way that I can answer that is um, to say that I understand the difficult question that the politicians have to decide between keeping the country open for business and shutting it down for healthcare. Those are both worthy, important goals. I mean, I'm hardly a Trump fan, if you read my blog. <laughs> um, but having said that, you know, a part of me agrees with him when he says, you know what, we, we have to get back to business. Mm. And clearly we do, That not just because Trump says so, but, you know, this is unsustainable. I mean, we're going to be in a depression if stuff goes on for months, or it seems to me that we will. At the same time, you cannot possibly question the wisdom and the truth of the medical people. So, you know, I'm kind of stuck on that dilemma the way so many other people are. Sure. And I don't know if that answers your question. I mean, it just, you know, it just makes me realize that, that um, there's a lot of very tough, complicated issues. There are not always easy solutions. And in this case, I, I honestly don't know what the solution is. I've, I've tended to be the kind of person all my life who has uh, trusted authority. Right. I, mean, I, I trust my doctors. I trust my investment people. I generally trust my political leaders. I trust my governor, Gavin Newsom. So I'm like, you know, I don't know how I would solve this problem if I was, you know, the dictator. So I'm sort of happy to leave it to the powers that be and, and the political process to work itself out, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. So I wish I had a better, better answer on the connection between. No, that's quite all right. Uh, I, just, coronavirus. I guess I'm sort of looking for not for answers, but just for you know how big a deal is this going to be in life? And this seems like on a scale of one to ten for you while you were going through it, the Madoff thing, you know, it was a fifteen and a half, but in retrospect does it still have that same kind of impact on your life overall? Yeah, I think there's some PTSD there. You know, you never get over it. I mean, part of it is the catastrophizing. It's like, well, what's going to happen next? Right. I mean, so many bad things have happened that, you know, you look into the future and it's, it's like, well, this can't go on. The good stuff can't go on happening. Something bad has to happen. It seems to be the story of my life anyway. And of course, you know, just as I was feeling okay a month ago, <laughs> something bad did happen. Things so, change. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, in one way, you know, all you can do is laugh about it and uh, take a deep breath and enjoy today, you know, the moment, the food I'm eating now and the wine I'm drinking now and the sunshine that's shining on me now and my dog now. Yeah. And one tries to do that. I mean, I think we all try to do that. 
But lurking there in the back of the mind is always that, wow, you know, the, the other shoe's going to drop. And um, I can never really relax and just enjoy life because, yeah, you know, it's the shit's going to hit the fan again. And yeah, it did. And my investment guy is calling me. I'm sure he's calling everybody saying, you know, well, we're, you know, doing our due diligence. And we think that by the end of the year, the, everything's going to be down only less than 5% and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, one can only hope. I mean, they don't know. They don't, they don't know. No one Nobody has, knows. No one has the clue. I mean, it's a cliche, you know, we're in uncharted, unprecedented waters, but no one does know. And, you know, to some extent, I sort of, I don't want to say I take uh, comfort in the suffering of others, but we really are in this together. This time, it's not just me, my family, and a bunch of Jews. It's like <laughs> the whole fucking world. I mean, the whole freaking world. Uh, he's Jewish, it, ladies and gentlemen. He's Jewish. He can say I that. I am Jewish. <laughs> and, and the, the whole thing is just, you know, Europe and Asia and yeah. South America. I mean, it's... It's insane. So, as I say, I certainly don't take comfort in in the suffering of others, but at least I can tell myself, well, you know, if I go down, everyone else right. is going down. You're not being singled out here. Tell me a little bit uh, where our listeners can find out more about you and your wine books. Got a few wine listeners who listen to the show, so maybe they'll find some interest in some of the things you've put out. People can go to uh, stevehimoff.com, and I think that has links to my two books. It does. And we'll have links in the show notes and the book titles are A Wine Journey Along the Russian River and New Classic Winemakers of California. Those are both available at Steve Heimoff, H-E-I-M-O-F-F.com. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Paul. I really had a good time. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm grateful to you for sharing your story with such candor and frankness, I know that will help a lot of us that are going through difficult times right now not freak out too bad. I'm glad you made it through on this side. And folks, if you like wine, go check out Steve's work at steveheimoff.com. Also, as I mentioned in the brief plug earlier in the show, if you want some perspective on how some of the wisest folks from around the ages, from back in ancient times, thought about how to deal with difficult times, go back and listen to that interview I did with Ryan Holiday from October 1st, 2019. He's an expert on stoicism, might even say he's a stoic himself, and he offers great perspective on dealing with the challenges that the fates bring to us. Hey, if you like what we're doing, sure would appreciate it if you'd share this show with three friends who are equally smart, inquisitive, and beautiful like you are. And as always, thank you to my friend Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart. Goodbye.